You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. And as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, how's everything today? Well, I can't complain. I mean, I'm... Uh... Today's a busy day, uh, interviews and everything with uh, the book. And, uh, and uh, by the way, if you, uh, when are you leaving for Florida? Uh, December 26th. Okay, perfect. Because I sent you a little package today and it'll be there. It'll be there before then. Awesome. It can't well take it with me. And I hope I know what it is. Well, is everybody no, can tell with my good. voice? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Well, as everybody can tell with my voice, I'm a little under the weather. I had a little minor surgery the other day on my uh, throat, which I'm hiding. That's why I'm dressed up like this. And uh, anyway, so bear with me, guys. Now we well, got as, some as, good news. As they said, uh, Mike, in, in your day and my day, is suck it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're right. I know. I knew that was coming at some point. The um, January 13th looks like the target date for some NHL to get started. So we're pretty happy about that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I'm kind of shocked that they said it was going to be a 56 game season, which I don't know how they're going to get 56 games in. And uh, because I, I think what they'd like to do is finish a little bit closer to the normal time when the Stanley Cup's given out, and maybe next year be able to start on a regular schedule, but I don't know. They, they have it planned out, I guess, and uh, they have a way to do it. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts of outdoor games or talking about doing two game or three game series or, you know, two game series with two teams all at the same time over a week. And so anyway, you know, regardless, it's going to be different. You're going to have to keep an open mind. It's not going to be like it was, but you know, it's still hockey and that's all that counts at the end of the day. And the Canadian division, I love the thought of that. I and the Canadian division. Yeah, so we've got that. So... Well, it's going to be great. It's going yeah. to be good. Now, Squid, today, a couple of things here in our historical side of our, our segment here. Today, 1968, today, legendary Johnny Bauer. He recorded his 37th and final shutout of his career on Ronnie Ellis scoring a one goal for a one nothing victory over Philadelphia, which was their first road victory of the season, by the way, in that year. Squid, he was quite a man. Did you ever spend any time with him? Yeah, I actually spent a lot of time with Johnny, and uh, Johnny was always a regular in the alumni box. In fact, they had a, in the old box, they had a stool or not a stool, but a, a, they made a wooden box kind of, and it had his name on it, and they would put it in the corner that so he could stand on it and watch the games. And uh, yeah. a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. I, I you know, I, you'd, you'd have to search the earth uh, wide and long and, and hard to find a, a gentleman like Johnny Bauer. Well, I can tell you one of my fondest memories was the day that Deb and I hosted uh, a viewing of the room with him and some of his friends and we pulled the 62 Stanley banner that I had out which I still own and as he was holding with his wife Nancy all of a sudden I looked at him and we were taking people were taking pictures it's, tears were streaming down his face and you know that as Deb and I talked after the thing about it is you know he's just like a fan too and all the memories that must have been running through his memory at the time uh, thinking about what that day well you know that day and what had happened and all that stuff it just was all racing back to him and it all became very emotional. So it was a very special moment for us to experience that. But again, 
you know, the emotions of the players. I mean, you unfortunately didn't get the get that experience with the cup, yeah. but you know where they're coming from. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I can I can understand it 100 percent and probably at you know at his age too, he's probably at an age where a lot of the guys from that team maybe were were not around and uh, you know or or you know hadn't seen yeah. a lot of them for quite a while. So that brought back so many probably unbelievable memories for him. That's yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, on this day also, in 1981, ex-Maple Leaf Ian Turbo became the first defenseman in Los Angeles Kings history to score a hat trick. It was the second of his career. Scored four goals that night, by the way, in a win over the Canucks. But everybody remembers the first one, February 2nd, 1977. He scored five goals as a Maple Leaf against the Detroit Red Wings. And the Red Wings were his favorite team as a kid growing up, he told me one time. So... He sure did it in style, Squid. Five and a four. <laughs> wow, that's uh, yeah. But he, he was a pretty darn good player, and uh, uh, Ian was big. He was strong. He could skate. He was like smart. He had a great shot. Um, I don't know. I think he just was one of those guys that kind of had a laissez-faire kind of attitude, and uh, I think he could have been a much better player than and played longer than when that than he did. But, but yeah, nonetheless, that's, that's, great player. He sure did. And also in this there, our last little tidbit for us today was, is this, is in 1933, the infamous Eddie Shore, Ace Bailey situation or incident occurred when Bailey took the hit from Shore from behind. He thought he was, he went after the wrong Maple Leaf. It was Red Horner actually hit him and he thought it was Bailey and hit him where he got confused and hit him and ended his career with a concussion, almost killed him. So that's one of those incidents that still lives on and it will live on in infamy, I guess, with as far as hockey goes. Yeah, and you don't, I mean, you see now that they're trying to take that kind of hit completely out of the game. I, and that's one of the reasons why I've always said that I, I think implementing the red line and center ice line and putting it back in with slow guys on the forecheck and let the defenseman go back and get pucks without getting hit from behind and, and getting yeah. hurt. Yeah. Well, we should mention today with our guest today, speaking of uh, which is somebody you're familiar with, but it's a bit of a role reversal for you in the fact that you coached him in the minors. Now, Squid, you know, this says one of two things. One, this says you coached a long time or you're a pretty old guy because he's now in his 18th year of coaching after playing. And of course, I'm referring to Jared Bednar, who's now coach of one of the most exciting teams in National Hockey League, the Colorado Avalanche, among your ex-players. Yeah, well, he, he must have listened to me a lot and learned a lot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I like to think that anyway. <laughs> but well, he was a great, yeah, he was a great uh, guy on our team, and I made a trade uh, uh, that year, our championship year, uh, to get him and Dan Farnell from uh, Huntington, West Virginia. And they came in and they were they were big parts of our team for a couple of years, uh, two or three years. Well, actually, they went on and kept playing for them uh, after I left and went to St. John's. So and then he became an assistant there and then the head coach there and then the American League. And, you know, good for him. I And he's got one heck of a team there in Colorado and he's done a pretty good job with them. Well, it sure seems like it. So we're going to get to him just before we get to him and bring him on. We have our question of the week. It comes from. Jim and Markham, who, again, I, I kind of set you up with a little bit of a segue setting you up with your age, because he said when you're in your 40s, which was, that was some time ago, you're in your 40s, you're being interviewed on Sportsnet, and let's see if you remember this, 
And you actually made a comment that you were, by the way, you can tell this is unscripted, folks, because I'm coming right at Squid right at this. Now, he, he actually said, they asked you at the time, could you play? And you said, you're in good enough shape at the time in your 40s. You thought you could come back and play. The question to you is from Jim is, were you serious about that at the time? Um, yeah, I, I was. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think I was, I, I, and I think I followed up on that by saying that I don't think I'd be able to, accomplish what I did, you know, earlier in my career, but I think I still thought I could play and um, maybe not as a prominent a role, but, you know, say a power play specialist go, you know, in front of the net and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I still thought at that age that I could, you know, score 25 to 30 goals, uh, which, you know, I think could help any team. Absolutely. Even if I sat on the bench, so most of the time and, and just went out and played a few shifts here and there and then power play. Yeah, that would have been but, that okay. So there, there you go. So you do have a memory. So I, I gotta I gotta leave you alone. I give you kudos in that when you got it. <laughs> you, you passed it with flying colors. So I think it's about time that we uh, maybe shift our gears here and maybe go and listen to see what Jared has to see. Let's let's bring him on board and let's let's see what kind of coach you really were. All right, Squid, our guest is someone you're very familiar with and coached in ECHL in South Carolina, who after a six or so year playing career started in your old spot in South Carolina, where he started to establish himself in the coaching ranks, worked his way up the stripes through the ECHL, the ACHL with a championship in uh, Cleveland with uh, Columbus's uh, farm, AHL Farm Club, winning Calder Cup. And then in August of 2016, he was hired as the head coach of the Colorado Avalanche, now one of the most exciting teams in the National Hockey League. Pleased to have joining us today, Jared Bedner. How are we doing today, Coach? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I was uh, looking forward to this, getting a chance to talk some hockey with you and Squid today. It'll be fun. Well, now, um, <laughs> how you been spending your time on through this pandemic? Now, you've just sort of said, not obviously, not a lot of hockey. Yeah, so... The, the first break before the, the playoff bubble, I stayed in, in Denver and did our season wrap up and um, just was trying to enjoy some time there and, and uh, school got done and, and, you know, we decided we didn't know what, how quickly the playoffs was going to come. It seemed like we were getting led along there for a little ways and trying to uh, start it earlier than what had actually happened. So I stayed there, um, which was nice because um, I off season in Charleston, South Carolina. So I was able to get out, see the city, get up in the mountains a few times, enjoy the outdoors. And, uh, then we went into the playoffs and since then I've been back down South in Charleston here. And, and now that we've got some word and some indication on, uh, the season possibly starting up right after Christmas, I'm, I'm going to get ready and head back up there and, uh, get to work and see, uh, be there when all of our guys start trickling in. Well, now, before we go any further, okay, Jared, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question got to get it right out of the way it's the elephant in the room what was this guy like on the call here with us to play for he was great yeah he uh he he, he brought me he actually traded for me to get down to uh, charleston south carolina i was playing up in huntington uh, my first couple of years and came down there and it was um it was an experience but he was player's coach you know he he was um, had a knack for um, getting the most out of his players and putting them into positions to to succeed. And um, you know what? It's what we're all trying to do as coaches and using the right guys in the right situations and and making everyone uh, 
feel important and and know the importance of their role that they're buying into and and you know whether you were a, a mucker and grinder or a rugged guy like myself or you were a high-end skill guy you know by the you had the ability to to make y'all feel equal and and um you know always recruited character guys and and fun guys it had real good camaraderie in the room and a real good sort of vibe to our team, a good culture. And that's something that we've been trying to continue in the South Carolina, or South Carolina organization since he left, you know, trying to mimic those teams that we had back then when Bobby was there. Squid, you're going to, you want to add on well, to that? Boy, that's a pretty nice thing. Yeah, that's very nice. I, uh, but no, <laughs> I mean, that's something that I did do and I, I tried my best to, to make everybody feel like they were as important as an ex. And I, you know, I think there's a lot more to coaching than what people think. And I, and I, and I guess Benji could, could uh, answer to this too. And that is that communication is such a key element in, in, like you said, making everybody feel like they're as important as the next person and, you know, explaining what everybody's jobs are and that sort of thing. Like I remember, and maybe Benji could add, uh, talk to this as I remember there was times where you know, our power play would be sputtering a little bit, wasn't going very well. And I would uh, talk to Jared and Dan Fornell and, and I'd say, would you guys mind, do you mind going in front of the net in the power play? And I'd throw the two of them in front of the net and just take away the goalie's eyes and, and we'll have three guys shooting. And then, you know, eventually they started going in and then we could try other things after that because teams, they knew what you were doing going into the game. And uh, so doing that, uh, and they accepted it, you know, it wasn't a problem. They did. Yep. No problem. We'll do it. And, uh, so I, I, I loved it. And, uh, I think the biggest thing that you said, and I, I was, I was big on character and I, we had probably the best group of players with the best character that I've ever coached, uh, for a couple of years there. And one in particular, when we won the championship. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think when it comes down to the to the the players that you have in the room, and if if it's a tight group like we were back then, um, you know, any sort of tweaks or changes you made to the deployment of our players, I think other guys bought into it because they were excited for the guys next to them. And I, I think that uh, especially at that level, guys are playing for for love of the game and wanting to uh, win championships and have fun. And you know that it's it's you know, not quite as serious as what it is in the National Hockey League level or even the American League level. So it's, I think that uh, the guys that are playing down there are looking for the fun aspect of it and they're real selfless players. It's a fun, it's a fun level to coach at and be a part of, that's for sure. Now, as a career minor leaguer, in, you know, during in your playing days, did you prepare or did you think you were going to become a coach at some point or did that just something to just spring upon you? You know what, I think as I got later on in my career, it's something that I was really interested in doing. Um, I had played in South Carolina for years. I went went up to the American League for a couple in the old International League. And when I came back to South Carolina the second time, uh, it, it was something that I was thinking about. Mostly because our goaltender at the time, Jason Fitzsimmons, was... Uh, you know, went behind, had a uh, career-ending injury as a goalie and, and went on Vivey's staff and then was assistant coach after Vivey left. And, um, he, you know, he, 
he he took over the head job and I was actually still thinking about playing and uh, for another few years I think it was 29 when I retired and um, you know I just kind of lost a little bit of my edge and he said well why don't you come coach with me and uh, when he got the opportunity to be the head guy and, and then I really started thinking about it and, and made the decision to do that and um, I, you know I instantly fell in love with it so I had to answer your question, I was contemplating, yeah. you know, using, doing that. And then once uh, I started doing it, recruiting players and coaching and, and, you know, it took me a few months to kind of find a little bit of a groove. And then I just fell in love with it and knew right away it was something that I wanted to pursue long term. No, yeah, well, I can speak biggest... to uh, Mike. Sorry, ahead. I, I can speak to that, too, and that it was kind of funny that it happened this way, but yeah. it was kind of a succession. Um like I was coaching there and then I brought Rick Aduno in as my assistant. He took over. Now when Jason came down Fitzsimmons, our goalie and his wife was going to dental hygienist school, I believe it was. And uh, for two years, it was a two year class. So I signed him. I could, couldn't sign him to a two year contract. You weren't allowed to in the league. So I signed him to one year, but I told him, I guaranteed him he'd be there for two years. And then he, screwed up his back. He couldn't play the next year. So I said, okay, well, we're going to pay you, you know, I mean, cause I, I made a promise to you. And so he became our second assistant, but then I left and went to St. John, Rick Aduno took over and he was an assistant, Jason Simmons. So then when he took over as a coach, same thing happened. Bedsy took over as an assistant and then he became the head coach. So it was kind of like a, uh, uh, turntable like everything was just going former players coming in and taking over as assistants and then head coaches and and the organization has has uh, done very well because of that it's now, really that 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 succession is, is continued you know even another three four times after after i yeah. left they've, they've killed you know and and um you know i think it's it just you know those those character guys you get in the room that want to become coaches you can tell they're good leaders and, and they learn the guys that have been there before them and, and the, the most important part of that i think is the culture that you know you help create is just it's still really strong the camaraderie and the alumni is still here helping out and, and uh, being a part of it so it's a, it's a neat organization so now jared for you what was the biggest transition you found moving from playing to coaching early in your coaching career uh yeah well it's the hours, long hours. It's, it was one of those things, you know, in the ECHL and Vibe will attest to it. You, you yeah. get used to, you know, your, your rhythm of your day and uh, as a player, and then you start coaching and in the ECHL, you have, you know, two guys and um, you're, you're wearing all kinds of different hats. You got to recruit your team. You have to coach your team. You're, you're, you know, the welcoming committee, your transportation, you're, you're looking for housing and, <laughs> you know all the things that, that you just never thought that you thought twice about um, that take kind of take place behind the scenes to take care of the players and uh, we wanted our players to be real comfortable so we worked pretty hard off the ice to make sure that they had um, you know all the sort of uh, perks that we could get for them down here so that that was it was good uh, in a lot of ways because it helped you learn the business side of things and, yep. and just what it takes behind the scenes it gives you a healthy respect for all the people that you know, we 
have now in the NHL that, you know, would just allow me to just be the head coach and, the, you know, the coaching is more specialized with your skills coaches, your goalie coaches, your, um, you know, sometimes it's multiple guys, strength coaches, and then all your assistant coaches and take care of your special teams and, and positional play. I think that you just get to focus in on, on what you really love, and that's coaching. So, Jared, uh, you know, go back to your the South Carolina days, and then and when you you know first started coaching, do you notice any differences on on from then till now? If the players are any different, and you have to kind of handle them any any differently than you did when you first started? Well, I think I think you touched on it. it you know, earlier when it comes to the communication part of it, you know, like it, I think it's a fine line on how you handle, handle guys. And, and you were talking about some of the different aspects of coaching, you know, when I was playing, even with you, Bobby, and we, and we got along great. It, you know, we didn't sit and need to, you know, chit chat or felt, didn't feel a need to, you know, talk to the coach every day to be comfortable in our position. And maybe that was just a knack that you had. And, but, you know, throughout my career, uh, I felt like generally, if you were talking to the coach a lot, then it was uh, because you weren't doing your job effectively. And um, now, now I think it's different. I think the players, um, they, they like the, they like the feedback. They want more feedback, you know, and, 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 and every player is different. Some guys just need a, you know, quick conversation here and there and don't need a, a lot of the communication of it. And other players um, thrive in that environment and want, and want to have, you know, a lot of conversations and, and talk about different things and, and, and how they're in playing and where they see it going and, and their role on the team. And, and that's fine too. I think that's part of the job is that balance and that, but I do think it's a fine line. Like I don't like to, or I try not to overcoach my players, but I, I want to be with what's going on. I don't want them to feel like um, they're not important or that they have, I don't want them to have questions, but I also don't want to smother them. You know, I like to give our guys some space to be creative and, and um, sort of figure things out on their own too. I think you get a little bit more of a mature player than just, you know, force feeding them the information that, that, that you think they need. Well, so along those lines, Jared, uh, just, just picking up on that, it walks right into my next question was going to be like, as a player, it's more of an individual quest or motivation to get yourself ready for a game. But as a coach, what you're touching on, you're dealing with the bigger picture stuff. You're dealing with 20 different personalities or so. For you to be, you got to be mentally tough to adjust to that. But was it much more mentally tougher to adjust than you imagined, like when you first when you started coaching? Yeah, I mean it's a different challenge. I think every year, it, just depending on your locker room, you, you you know different challenges arise, and you're always problem solving. You know the work. There's an unlimited amount of work to do as a, as a coach or as a staff, um, and you prioritize, you know, the things that you feel are important every single day and you solve problems and you, you feed the players information and you see how they respond to it. And um, then the next day, it's, it's kind of like Groundhog's Day. You'll, you'll fix, fix an issue and, and another game, another issue will pop up, you know, and um, you'll, you'll just get a player playing his, his best hockey as an individual and, 
and another player will start to struggle. So the goal is to try to get everyone playing as best as they possibly can for as long as they possibly can, especially at the right time of year. And, um, you know, that's a never ending job because, you know, it's a tough league and players are going to go through challenges that they feel good about from a confidence standpoint and, and they overcome and other ones that they don't feel great about and, and that they'll struggle with. So I think, um, you know, that that mental side of the game is, is kind of what Vivi was saying earlier. There's more to the game than just X and O's, but, um, you know, the, the, the character players and the, the guys are confident in what they do and the guys that put the work in and prepare properly tend to have more success because of uh, uh, the difficult road that's coming ahead. And Ricky, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, and I just, uh, like, obviously, it's a different era, obviously, it's a different, I mean, there's so many young players in the league today, and uh, I'm just, you know, I, I've heard from different people that it's kind of a different thing right now where, you know, like, when I played, of course, that was a long, long time ago, we're talking like 40-some years ago, but uh, <laughs> when, when the coach said, you know, go through that wall for me, uh, you asked them how you did on the way back. And now it's kind of like when they say, go through the wall for me, the player wants to know, well, why? And, you know, what's in it for me and what's in it for the team? And you run into that situation anytime where these young players just don't, uh, they need to be explained to why you want them to do certain things. Yeah. I think it's the age of information and, and um, they, the why is really important, you know, because, you know, I think in a team app, in a team atmosphere, you have the 20 plus players, another eight, 10 coaches, management, and, and everyone will have different views and opinions. And, and, and if you're, you know, adequate as a coach in, in sort of delivering your message, what we're going to do, um, and you're concise and you're adequate at explaining the why, you're, you're more likely to get the buy-in, you know, if, if this is the end game that you're trying to accomplish and you, and you explain to your players why we're doing this and, and um, you can show examples of it, and it, you know, that lead to success. I think the players are, are, are more apt to buy into it because, you know, everyone's trying to have success as an individual and, and also as your team, you know, the end goal is, is trying to raise that cup over your head. And so what, the more you can do to help the players buy into that, I, I think the better off you're going to be. And, and, you know, you give them the information that they want, you know, it's, they're the ones on the ice playing and uh, the more comfortable you can make them feel with why you're doing things, the better off you're going to be as a team. Now, Jerry, looking back on your, on some of the coaches you played for coming up through the ranks. I mean, some of the times coaches and players are not always going to get along. So, I mean, some of the guys you may look back on and thought, boy, why was he such a jerk all the time? Or you guys players would be talking about it. But now that you're on the other side of the desk, and you're making some of those decisions. Have you thought back to yourself now? Now I know where that guy was going and why he was doing those things or saying those type of things to me as a player. I really get it now. All the time. Yeah, all the time. And, and you know, I always had a, a healthy respect for all my coaches. I, I was lucky to have some some great coaches and some of them you're familiar with, obviously, Vivi in, in, in my ECHL days. I had Dale Hunter, who was in, in – um, Maple Leafs for a year and he was he was hard on me but he also you know made you feel really good about uh your game and 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 and, and things that you um or sorry Mark Hunter not Dale Hunter and when you're when you're um when when you did something that was going to benefit the team um you know he was real good at identifying that and make you feel really good about it so 
um, make you want to, you know, help you want to try and be more consistent at that. And, and, and I love the, I love to be pushed as, as a player. And, you know, I think there's a lot of players in the league that still want to be pushed. It's a little bit different, uh, from the communication standpoint and, um, you know, how, how coaches push their teams, but ever, you know, as, as, you know, head coaches or, you know, coaching staffs, we're always trying to get the most out of our players. And I think if they know that you have their best interests at heart, um, just fair and honest with them, they're not always going to like what you have to say, but you, you know, if they know that you're a good person and care about them as individuals and they're, they're, they're going to continue to work for you and, and continue to try and buy into what you're selling. And Ricky. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I'm in a completely different situation than him because I played for some guy. I wouldn't <laughs> say I just, I, I, I hated my coaches, but um, some of them were a little over the top, uh, you know, with the yelling and the screaming and throwing things around the dressing room and things that I didn't think were really necessary. I thought, you know, I always, it, it's funny because even back then when I was playing, I always thought, well, why don't they just talk to us? You know, that was one of the things that I always was going through my mind. Why don't they just sit sit down and talk to us about things instead of throwing tantrums and, and you know, acting like crazy men? You know, and then lo and behold, that's what I ended up doing as a coach and, and how I coach. I just, all I did was I just sat down and explained things and talked quietly and, you know, went about business. But, um but you know what? I, I wouldn't say I hated any of the coaches. They, they all had the same thing, uh, common thing, and that was they wanted to win. And they were trying to push you as hard as they could uh, so that we could win. And, uh, you know, that never bothered me. I know it bothered a lot of other players that I played with, and, and they were angry about it. Uh, but I did always wonder why they didn't just call someone in and, and sit down and have a just a normal conversation and, and explain, you know, why they were, they were doing that. And lo and behold, years later, that's kind of what it is. And, and I get it. I get it. I totally get it. Now, Jared, when did you think you could uh, coach in the national hockey league or did you? Uh, you know what? I was, I, I was in the ECHL for a number of years, was, was lucky enough to, um, to win a cup there and um, got the opportunity to go to the American league and, and bounced around a little bit from assistant to head guy to assistant. And then I got an um, opportunity in Cleveland and or Springfield. And then eventually Cleveland, as we moved our, our franchise and, you know, you start talking or to, to people in the NHL, you're, you're around it more when you're coaching in the American league, you're at tra training camps and you, see how everyone, you know, different coaches and staffs are going about their business for in their preparation and just the detail that goes into um, getting the team ready at that level. And, um, you know, I, I, I became infatuated with it a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, I was uh, never in a rush to get to the NHL. I always, you know, kind of, you know, preach to my players, you know, as a coach, it's my job to get them ready. So when they get the opportunity to go, the, the you know the detail and work ethic and commitment and all the things it takes to be able to stay there as a player would keep them there I wasn't in, interested in sending them up and and having them come back to me right away because they weren't ready and I kind of took my own advice there I just wanted to like sort of hone my craft 
um, keep trying to improve every year, every, every month, every year to, to get to my, so I was in the right position when, or when I got an opportunity in the right position that I'd be able to have some success and stay. And, um, so it was at some point there after being in the American for a couple of years, I, 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 I felt like I, I could, you know, hone my craft enough to get an opportunity or, or to be able to coach the NHL if, if I was able to get an opportunity. So walk us through the process of landing the job in Colorado when you had the conversation with Joe Sackick. Yeah, so well, that came out of the blue, uh, obviously, because of the um, uh, Paddy Wah had resigned. And um, so they were looking for a coach late in the year. And, and that was uh, the year that we had just won the Calder Cup. And, and, and I was just getting ready to go back in late in the summer and, and uh, get prepared for uh, Columbus camp and then our Cleveland camp after that and I got a call and uh, asked if I would come and interview and it just kind of took me by surprise and um, it, you know I didn't have an indication that was coming and you know I enjoyed you know got my name from you know probably Chris McFarland my he was my assistant GM in, in um, Columbus for a couple of years with Springfield and and then he made the move to uh, Colorado before that and so I got a chance to go in and interview and talk to Joe and we had good chemistry and I ended up being lucky enough to get hired for the job and it was um, you know a dream come true and now I'm just trying to sort of repay it. Um, Joe and the organization for giving me the opportunity by going out and trying to help us win, win a cup. Now your um, first camp when you went in as a head coach, the thought process for you going into camp, what was the message or what did you want the players to hear coming from Jared Bednar, the new head coach starting the season? Well, it was a lot as was a lot about, you know, the, the way I saw the game and how I felt like the game should be played. Um, you know, our team in Cleveland was, was a, a, a real good, well-rounded team. Uh, we like to, you know, like everyone tried to find ways and, and, and to get faster and play faster and play with more pace, both on the offensive side of things and on the defensive side of things. And I felt like that that was a, a model for success in the national league at that time too. And so that, you know, making the, the structural changes that we needed to, um, to get competitive in the national hockey league was the number one goal. And there were certain players that we needed to get on board. The like guys that likes and Nathan McKinnon that would just fit their style um, to a T and we felt like they could accept in that, um, you know, system and, and the way we wanted to play and getting those guys on board was, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty easy. They were, they were excited about um, some of the changes we were making and, at start and then we didn't have a lot of success so then it became a real grind it was a long year it was a scary year for me you know because I'd worked so hard to try and get there and you know I I knew there was the reality was that you know there there could be a chance that I wouldn't be back my second year but I'm grateful to Joe for keeping me around and giving me the opportunity to kind of work past that and as an organization we 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 started seeking out players to um help that we felt could play in that structure and excel in the structure and in and, and the system that we wanted to play. And it's, it was kind of going back to the years when Joe played and the, the type of team they had, they were an offensive team. They played fast, they were competitive, um, but they had played with a lot of skill and, 
and um, had some swagger to their game. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do now, even, even in the Avs organization. Talking about all the things you have to do in the ECHL. And I mean, really it's, it's a year long job because you got to recruit in the summer. You got to go to camps and look for players and all that kind of stuff. Um, Is there still a lot of work that you have to do in the summer, like talk to players and and do different things or, or is it kind of like you are free for the summer? I mean, you'll have to do some things obviously, but is it, is it summer busy with doing some things as it was back then? It's busy, but it's, um, it's spent on, on almost strictly coaching. So, you, you know, you get going through a year and you get in the playoffs and, and everything comes at you fast and you have ideas and you'll write them down or you'll take notes on some of the things that you really want to look at as when you get breaks, all-star break or Christmas break or the bye week and you, you'll pick through some things. Um, and, and now the analytics, you know, the teams are really good at get, getting the information that you need along the way. And, and you have some support staff to help pick through some projects. Um, but I use the, the time right at the end of the year to, while everything's fresh in my head to dig in and do some work and some projects and just sort of evaluate our team and make sure that, that we feel like we're doing the right things in different areas and could we improve in certain areas or where do we need to improve and where, where can we build on our strengths? So that takes a little bit of time. Then you get away from it for a bit. And then as you know, then it's draft and development camp. So you're kind of come back. I try to get out of Denver um, and get to get to Charleston and spend some time to sort of decompress. And then you're back at it with the draft and development camp. Then I get away again um, for a short time and and then you know you're always back in a few weeks early to get ready for training camp so it's a little bit split up I I get generally get a couple breaks in there that, that I don't have to think about hockey for you know weeks at a time and then uh, it's back to work so it's busy I think you need to take care of yourself as a as a as a coach as a staff as players and sort of make sure that you're, you're getting your mind off hockey for a little bit so you can get rejuvenated physically, but also mentally to, to be ready to go for the grind of a season. You probably haven't watched as much video in your life as you have probably since you've gotten to the National Hockey League, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, like the systems for breaking it down is so much better now than it used to be. It's not like when you were coaching five, you had the no. two uh, VHS tapes and <laughs> and you have video coaches that are breaking it down and you know special teams your assistant coaches are dialing in the special teams and individual play and I mean, you can you can get a lot of work done in a short period of time with the new uh, uh video systems that we have as coaches which is a good thing because like i said before this is unlimited work if you have to you know, part of the, the fine line is balancing, you know, just how much that you, you have to break it all down, but just how much do you want to deliver back to your players and present to your players, I think is, is something that you, you, we, we as coaches have to be careful of. And I know I'm guilty sometimes of showing them way too much and giving them too much information when it's not needed. So now I just, along those lines again, Jared, and, and Squid, you can probably add a little bit to this, not only from a player standpoint, from a coach's standpoint, couple of things here first the biggest adjustment between you touched on it with the echl but i want to go back to that so the difference between the echl state of the american hockey league to the national hockey league the adjustments you had to make in your mental approach 
But also, some of the tough things you'd have to say to players versus the ECHL say the NHL. And we use that as a good example because in the ECHL, you're calling a guy in to sit across the desk from him and you're saying to him, you just don't have it. And there's nowhere for him to go. He's going back and playing beardy cocky with me and Markham. Whereas the NHL, if you're struggling, there's a couple of rungs they can go to and work on their game. So based on all of that, how did you adjust to all that coming from where you did to the big leagues? Well, every, all three leagues have their, you know, advantages. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with players and, and things that will motivate and incentivize guys. And, and all three of them also have their, their downfalls, you know, like the, it's what the players go through that, you know, on the highs and the lows that make the league unique, right? The, the, in HL, a lot of the players are just playing for love of the game. They like the community they live in. They're, they're trying to win and just make a living or experience it for a couple of years. And to get to the American League, some guys are digging in, trying to get there. Some of them are even draft picks now. You know, teams are, are using a lot of draft picks and, and sending them down to get them some minutes, especially goalies. But for the most part, the, the guys are, are, are real good guys. They want to have fun. They want to win. They're buying into the team concept. So it's, it's a fun league to coach in. There's not a lot of stress in your life when it comes to winning. You have individual owners um, that, that want to do well and you want you to put an exciting team on the ice and, and everyone wants to be competitive and win that trophy. But it's not too stressful. Um, then when you go to the American League, the, the, the highs of it are you have these players that are one step away. They're a phone call away to go into the NHL. So it's exciting because you're helping them refine their team. Um, you're taking, you know, younger draft picks and guys that you know the organization's high on. And you're trying to improve them to the point where they can go make an impact. But it's the, the finish line's right there in front of them, you know. So the guys work extremely hard. They're 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 really motivated. They know they can add a zero on their paycheck if they get called up. Oh, it's a, it's a motivation for them to listen to you. And at an NHL organization, we try to make sure that that we show support for our American League coaches and the staff because we want them to to be able to get the most out of those players long-term so they can come up and help us eventually in the, in the NHL. The downside to that is every time a player comes down when you're a coach and they're back in your locker room, they're miserable, you know? They're, they're, they don't want to be there. They're disappointed. They're heartbroken. Like they're run, riding the, 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 the roller coaster of emotions, you know, and you got to find a way to, to get them on, on track quickly and, you know, and there's challenges there. You know, NHL teams put pressure on the American League coaches to, to get these guys ready to play in the NHL, and they want them to play a lot of minutes. And if they're not playing well, they still want them to play a lot of minutes. And, and there's challenges there, you know, for, for a coach. Um, and then, then you get to the NHL, and it's, it's – I mean, it's an interesting – it's an interesting league, like motivating these guys to play every night as hard as they can. It's a demanding schedule – um, you know, social media is out there that, you know, there, there's, there's so many things that the players have to deal with. And at the end of the day, I think all they want to do is go out and play the game they love and have, have fun and have success and, and try to win a cup. And, you know, we've, we've got some real good character players and, and, and real, uh, 
leaders in our locker room. It's a, it's a fun team to coach. And now I think you find, you get to the point where your team feels like it's a contender and it, it becomes, um, it becomes even more fun to kind of watch these guys go about their business and, and just watch how dedicated they are in, in the game. And they're all still fighting every day to try and stay there and to make a better career for themselves. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's fun to coach the best players in the world. I, I love watching our guys play, not just on our team, but the best players around the league and be able to coach um, some of them coach against the rest, I think, is an awesome uh, opportunity for, for coaches. And, and, and we should be grateful for it every day. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would have to agree. Uh, I think the hardest league to coach in is the American League, personally. Um, there, there's more. Now, in my situation, in two years in St. John, which was Calgary's farm team, uh, you know, they would call you and say, okay, we need a right winger. Like, who should we call up? And you would, you know, you have young players that you're trying to develop and get them to the National League, like Jared said. And um, you might think in the second year that maybe this guy's ready or whatever the case might be. In my case, uh, Marty St. Louis was on my team and I kept saying, well, he's our best player by a country mile. I mean, you got to bring him up. Anyway, in the two years I was there, only once they called up the guy that I recommended. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, what the heck am I doing here? You hired me to make these guys NHL players. I'm doing the best I can. And you never call up the guys that I, I say. Anyway, uh, I thought that was probably the toughest league to coach in. Uh, but the hardest thing to do was in the ECHL when you had to tell a kid, who had dreams of maybe playing in the in the NHL or or even getting to the American Hockey League, when you had to tell him that he wasn't good enough to play, and that was probably the most difficult thing to do. Um, and some of them that were like Bunny the Rock, who I played with in Toronto, his son played for us for a short period of time, and he just wasn't good enough to play for him. So I had to, you know, here's a guy I played with, and his son comes down, and I have to tell him that I'm letting them go or I'm trading a guy. And, uh, you know, so that, that's probably the toughest part of the job is when you have to do things like that. Uh, the best part about it is when you're, whether you're in the ECHL or the American league and you see a player go up to the next level and do well, because that, that is super, super fun for, for a coach that you put so, that much work into helping that individual and then they go up and have success. And it, there's nothing like it. Well, Jared, we usually take some questions from fans too when we have guests on. And we've got a couple coming in from a few people like to ask you a few things. So here's one from Evan in Vancouver who asks, how does your approach change, if at all, when dealing with younger superstar players like McKinnon, Markar, and Ratanen? Well, first off, those guys for, for us – were able to come in, you know, Nate was there prior to, prior to me being there and was obviously a real good player um, on the verge of, of stardom and, and has really elevated his game. And, and that's, you know, that's something that he's accomplished in large part, just, you know, on um, his uh, preparation and what he has to do to get ready for a season. He's a student of the game and, 
And I think it was just a matter of time before he got to that point. And same thing with the other two guys, but they had both come in, you know, after I'd been there. And um, my, my feeling of it is, I think you got to give those young players, the players are making a, a, a large impact, uh, you know, on your team at a younger and younger age. Now the, the players that are coming in are more skilled than they've ever been and, and bigger and stronger than they've ever been due to their training and their preparation through junior and college. And um, I, I think you, you never, uh, I think back in the day, you always kind of slow played a, a player's, uh, you know, opportunity. And um, with, with some of these guys now, I think you got to give them the wor- world and, and, and see if they can succeed. And if, if they can't, then you might have to dial them back in certain areas. So I treat um, those players like they're um, veteran guys. I give them the respect that I do of all of our veteran guys and have been in the year in, in the league for years. Our young guys at Kill McCarr, they come out more mature, more with with everything that's that's going on they're real intelligent players and um, I give them a lot of opportunity just keeping in mind that if it doesn't always lead to success that they are still real young guys and young players with with very little experience so um, that they'll figure it out eventually but these guys are better than than a lot of the younger guys have ever been coming into the league so I try to treat them that way. Jules asked from Toronto it's a good question. Does the altitude of, the altitude affect the way you your team trains when at home compared to when you're on the road? Well, there's there's a lot of research. Um, you know, our, our strength coach and our and our trainers really take care of that. Um, Coming, we notice it. Our guys notice it uh, when we're gone for for long periods of time. Uh, the first day back's not bad. The second isn't even that bad. But you start getting the third and fourth days back after after road trips where you're coming back to the high altitude. It, it can affect your guys, and, and they, they get tired and, and just not feel great uh, out on the ice for a couple of days. So, uh, and, and I think teams are aware of that coming in as well. That they they come in the night before and we play the next day, and and, and they'll feel fine. Mm-hmm. Um, around for a few days and you'll start to catch up to them after a few days when your body starts to adjust. Now, here's the That's last one we're going to ask you. This one's coming. Oh, go when ahead. I, when, when I used to go in and play against the Rockies, which we're going yeah. back a long way, I don't know if it was the altitude or what it was that affected us. Maybe it was like, light. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, they're brewed out there. Are they in the, in the mountains? So, <laughs> so that works, but um no, we always, uh, it, it was always a thing that we were told that, you know, the altitude is going to make a big difference. And then you get out on the ice because we would go in the day before and then play the next night. And I mean, I don't think any of us felt the difference, and, and but we never stayed around either. So, you know, maybe a couple of days later, we may have. I've been told it's sort of the second day that you'll start feeling a little bit and probably thirds even worse, you know, Um so most teams are in and out by then when they come to play us, but if I had my choice, everyone would come in three days early then. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's one from Dimitri in Toronto. He asks, he says, Joe Sackick obviously is one of the greatest ever playing in the league and his hockey sense is almost second to none. Does Joe ever chime in any decisions you make with the team or maybe add any kind of input for things like strategy, line combinations, or any game time decisions? Or would you say he's more hands-off and leaves that all to you? 
just wondering what the relationship is like and if he makes any decisions at ice level. Yeah, so he's he's great. Um, obviously, and uh, a super intelligent hockey mind, and and um, he we especially during the season we get going for training camp, and Joe is around every day, and um, much like the players, uh, me dealing with the players, Joe is in there talking to myself and their other coaches and uh, the assistant GMs, and on a daily basis, we're we're more. Uh, you know, running through ideas and, and, and communicating on ideas, on ideas constantly. Um, I would say that he, he allows me to coach and, and allows me to make the final decisions, but we certainly ask his input and, and want his input. And, 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 and he likes talking hockey, you know, he's, he, he, he loves the game and, and um, his input, I, I, I put a, a lot of value in, in his uh, input and his knowledge and, and want to try and get that out of him as much as possible. And, and he shares with me different ideas and we mow them over within, you know, our management and, and coaching staff and try to come up with the best idea for not just individual players and how we deploy, we use them, but sometimes the things that they're going through and, um, you know, what's the best best approach for the for the player long term is is his main concern because he is the general manager of the team. And, um, we, you know, we need those guys to be at their best in order to win. And he has a lot of really good ideas when it comes to that. But for the most part, like he he'll ask my opinion on players and and personnel. But that's his his department, and then it's my job to coach the team. And if he doesn't, but but he is also my boss. So when if he if he sees something that he doesn't like, then he's not afraid to come down and and um, chat with me about it and ask me why I did certain things or why maybe I should think of of, of uh, some other options. And 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 we talk through that stuff. And uh, you know, I think it's real good to have you know smart hockey people like that sort of watching over what you do and bringing up ideas because as coaches I think at times you kind of get like the blinders on you, you might not be able to see a solution because you're you're too close to it but your management team is there to kind of overlook and, and see all the um the big picture and, and make sure you're thinking about that too well well if you this one if you ever want to call anybody, you can call me, Jerry, because I watch your games all the time. So if you need any any help at all, you can always call me. <laughs> well, Squid, you just stole my question. I was going to say, now, first off, you can answer this one too, Squid. Uh, also, Jared, two parts here. What makes a good coach? And secondly, now, besides the guy who just interrupted me and started speaking, <laughs> besides him having an influence on your career, was there anybody else you kind of looked at that maybe a pattern, a little bit of the ideas off of as you grew? Because let's face it. Never mind 20 hockey players or 23 hockey players trying to keep them happy. You can't keep 20 guys playing golf happy or 20 guys at any time keeping them happy all at once. Was, was there any of that, any influencers on you as you grew into the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and all my coaches throughout the years, but once they started coaching, and my first American League opportunity, well, ECHL opportunity came with Jason Fitzsimmons, you know, our goalie, the, the turn coach. Um, still a real good friend of mine lives down here in Charleston and works in the caps organization. He watches a lot of hockey and, um, real knowledgeable guy. So I, I, you, you develop friendships, guys that you trust, guys that you mm -hmm. coach against your peers, um, 
you know, they're all real good guys and, and open to sharing ideas as long as you're not playing them on that night or the next night. I think that we, that we do talk amongst one another and, and, you know, like I said, coaches are always kind of navigating challenges and, and trying to solve them. And then another challenge will, will pop up. So, um, but he's one, uh, Jim Playfair gave me my opportunity in, uh, um, the Calgary organization, him and Daryl Sutter, and he's coaching at Edmonton now with Dave Tippett. And, um, you know, I've talked a lot of hockey with him over the years. Uh, Glenn Gullitson was a, was a coach that I coached against in the ECHL. We were out East, they were out West in Vegas and we coached the American league against each other. Um, same thing, opposite sides. Um, so I, I bounce a lot of ideas off of him and we talk hockey and that, that's, you know, I think hockey people like to talk hockey and, and, you know, good people are willing to share their ideas and, and, and solutions with, with others and helping coaches underneath us, you know, with anything we can. And I, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of great people in this game and they're, they, everyone's been so generous with their information and, tried to help me along the way. So I try to keep remembering that and try to do what I can with, with, uh, with other people as well. Well, what we've been talking about this many times, what makes a good coach. And we've had guys like Bruce Boudreau and even uh, squid. We talked about this a lot and even coming through from you, uh, Jared, it just sounds like the biggest thing. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. It just sounds like communication appears to be the number one sort of, if you had to check off the box, that would be the number one criteria to be a good coach because as it's been pointed out to us, and we've discussed it before, all the coaches can teach the X's and O's, and pretty much it's all basically the same thing. It's dealing with those 23 personalities, which is the real kicker. That, that's, that's where you, 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 you um, run into the challenges, I think. And, and not just there, but um, being clear and concise and prepared with your, with your system plus tactical stuff, I think, is, is – uh, it, you know, can, it can give teams can give you fits at times, you know, you know that regardless of where teams sit in the standings, you'll play one team that you just have a lot of success against. And then you'll play another team um, that just feels like it's, it's they're most impossible to beat for whatever reason. And, um, but I think if, if you're evaluating a coach, the, the, the way he deals with his team and, and, and communicates with his team is important. Um, I think the, the way uh, players are deployed and, and how he uses his guys and can he get the most out of everyone, can he keep everyone involved, I think is important. The tactical side of things, you know, your systematic play and the structure of your game is important. And, and maybe more, you know, equally as important as all that is the cult, just the overall culture that you have in your, in, in, in your organization and, and, to make players want to come there and make them be a part of it and dig in to have success. And, you know, you look at, at Tampa Bay, they've had a core group of guys um, grow up in that system. They're, they're all, I'm sure, very good friends and want to see each other succeed. There's this, there's a selflessness to their, to their team and it led to success and it, it's not easy to get there. They've been at it for a long time in order to have their success and, and they finally got rewarded as were the caps, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, they went through a lot of uh, really good years where they didn't have success in the playoffs. And then finally they got their cup. So um, we know that it's not easy to do, but hopefully as that with the abs that we're um, 
keep heading in the right direction. Hopefully we'll get our cup here one day. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think even more so, I mean, I, back even when I started coaching, I, I always thought that communication and, and making everybody understand what their role was and, and that their role was as important as the next guy, I thought was the most important thing of coaching. And uh, I don't think a whole lot of people agree with me back then in, in uh, the early 90s, but um, you know, I think the fact that, and I love the fact that they, they got these unbelievable young players coming into the league and excelling right away. I mean, it's just, you know, to watch McCarr, for instance, one of the guys you mentioned, I mean, this guy's, I mean, he's a Norris caliber defenseman at, at 18, 19 years old or 20 years old. I mean, like you, back in our day, you didn't, you, you never heard of that. I mean, Guys didn't come in, especially defensemen, didn't come into their, their own in the NHL until they were in their mid-20s, you know, and then they became real good. And so I said, I think that says a lot about the players coming in and the way that they, they're, the journey they go through to get there. But I think the most important thing, like I said, is, is the culture is big, uh, Jared, as you said. I, I think that's probably that and communication are the two, in my mind, are the two number one keys in being successful. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, and I, I believe you've done a, an excellent job in doing that. I know, I know the first year was a rough one, uh, but Joe stuck with you and, uh, Hey, you know, you've, you've, you've turned things around and I think, well, just my personal opinion, you don't have the injuries you had in the playoffs last year. Uh, the cup might be sitting in Colorado as we speak. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I think you've done a fine job there. And uh, uh, I just wish that I had a chance to continue my coaching career after uh, Mississauga, but it ended very abruptly when I, when I was probably, what was I, 30, 40 years old, I guess it was, 39. So anyway, it's... Uh, it's been fun uh, when I coached. I loved it, and I know how much uh, you're passionate about it. And and hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see you raise a cup one day. Maybe not before the Leafs, so. Because <laughs> we have. I got to say that, Jared. I mean, come on, we have we have to say that on this show now. Well, plus boys, we haven't had one since '67, so. Wow, that that's true too. <laughs> now, boys, here's one for both of you guys. Um, besides talent, obviously, I mean, like. Is there is there a secret ingredient to winning in the NHL today? Now let let's actually take one step further. Would you guys agree, as a coach, and I'll start with you, Jared, in this one, is probably one of the biggest challenges you had dealing with players today, especially because the players are getting so much younger and they're having. Steve, you mentioned already, they're having such more impact on your lineup and on your game that it's convincing these guys that it's more than just talent that wins. Like worth work ethic, as an example, has to be forefront to being just a talented player. No, definitely. Definitely. Every team, every team has, has skill and, and talent and, and can beat you on any, any given night. I think there's, there's a lot, that, you know, a lot to learn, you know, as a team, like we, we just kind of started to develop our group. Um, it's been together now for three years. There's been subtle changes, but now we're starting to um, move in the right direction. And there, there's, you know the buy-in that you that you need from your group. You know, in in every aspect of your game, has got to be 
um, tremendous. And otherwise, you you don't win, or you'll run into opponents that that have a better buy-in than you do. So, um, leadership, character, uh, I think, are still underestimated in in an NHL locker room or in any locker room. You, I don't think you win without it. Um, I also think that uh, you know that work ethic and and. I, I don't want to work ethic is, I think is, is probably the wrong word because every team, they, it's a prerequisite. The teams are going to yep. work. Okay. Fair I enough. think, I think it's, I think it's, you know, next level competitiveness, okay. a deep, deep desire to compete and win in, in all areas of the game. I think that's what, what put, what, what pushes teams over the top, you know, and then when they when their belief system is strong and they believe they can win and they have a chance to win a cup and, and that competitiveness gets to the right level, then, then you're gonna win. You know, and I think you you again, I'm gonna go to Tampa because they're the most recent winner, but you look at um, you look at how competitive you, we play ski, skilled teams all the time. And then you go and play Tampa and you watch how just how competitive they're highly skilled players are and it, it doesn't it, you, you start to figure out real quickly why they won they've got a great you know they've done a great job of, of building that team coaching that team and then the players have, have a great buy-in a great belief system and um and they're highly competitive highly competitive team and that's why they won it's great yeah i mean uh i i think there's no question i mean if you look at the I mean, you look at the 30, 31 teams or 30 teams, whatever the heck it is now, I think it's 31, is it not? 31, <laughs> 32 soon. 32 soon, but, but they're, all, they're all extremely uh, talented, uh, as Jared said. And, and I, I agree. I, I think the teams that compete the hardest, um, especially when it comes into the, in the playoff time, I think they're the ones that, that win. And, and I think uh, if you can get everybody to buy into the fact that you have to be ultra competitive and you got to compete for every puck, compete for win every battle, because uh, they're all equal, I think, in, in the skill part of it, pretty much. I mean, there's some teams maybe a little bit more skilled, but if you can get all those guys uh, competing at that high level for every battle, every puck, then that's that, that's how you win now um it's time i think I, I, we want to thank you again jerry for taking all this time with this um you know and i know you're trying to prepare for a season hopefully coming up in the next month but looking back fondly i'm sure you do as rick we've talked to a few guys about bchi which is the fun league and it's a good pro league and the players are very good players but they're everybody we talked to that come through that league has some head scratching moments like steve ludzik told us as a coach one time he had to dress a trainer because he had no goalie told him don't get any shots they only got six but six goals went in and they won nine six rick's son justin was going on a road game one time and his coach was on the phone phoning beer league guides to fill the roster so they could feel the team that night did you have any sort of incidents like that when you were playing by when you're coaching back in that league oh yeah I, and i think you know what the league has come such a long way from the, the day i broke into it to when i left it t uh, 10 years later um, but the challenge does become at times when the, the more success you have in that league as a team, the more American league teams, coaches start calling and, and trying to call your players up. Well, if you're, if you're, you know, 
trying to do the right thing by the player, then you're you're going to the players and saying, hey, like you have an opportunity here to go to the American League and, and this is what it entails. And here's the guy's number. You want me to call him with you or you want to call him on your own and you and you you know, you let your players go and, and chase their dreams of playing in the NHL or playing as high as they possibly can. So you do get picked over at times. And oftentimes it's the NHL's third goalie, right? And any in injury and a goalie in the NHL and the American League, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're coming out of it. And I remember one time, I think Vivi was coaching and we were playing, you know, up the road and, and we already had a goalie injury. And um, we had uh, our, our backup goalie was playing in net, and he went. He he kind of got run into in the crease, and and uh, the our emergency backup was our one of the guys that worked in our front office. He was so excited, he jumped out on the ice and started stretching. And, and Vivi told him, he said, "Get get your." Get, he was already had his mask on. And Vivi told him, "Get your mask off. And get back in the bench. Are you going in net in this thing?" You know, so, and he kicks him back in. But that that was seemed to be the case a lot. It was a lot like, um, you know, we, you, you see you, you see different guys come in. But we had a ba- emergency backup goalie playing for us, and he just seemed to be a selfless guy. We call him, hey, we need someone for practice. He quit. He 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 leave work and come straight to the rink. And and we were playing a game at home, and and uh, I told our guys, I said, we're up we're up five nothing. Like have the, the our backup he he was coming in here and he he's been helping us out for months they i'm throwing him in the nets it was at yeah. home big crowd saturday night and we we called the timeout and i talked to our goal and he said yeah absolutely pull me out and, and put him back in he goes we're winning this game regardless so i threw our emergency backup in and, and our goal had kind of faked the injury and 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 we threw him in the net and he was so happy his kids got to see him play just trying to reward guys with that you know have, have uh, sacrificed in their personal life to come and help your team I think is you know was great and our team was so excited for this guy it was an amazing feeling that's awesome Ricky you got any one you had uh, there was a lot one? of them I mean uh, like like Jared said uh, you know especially if you're a good team and you got good players that are doing a good job yeah. for you you get picked over and uh, I think it's changed a lot now like I mean I see like my son's still in Cincinnati. I mean, they get eight, nine guys sent down from Rochester that are signed with the Sabres or or maybe just with Rochester. So they don't have to go out and recruit as many players. Uh, but I remember there was one road trip two years ago, or was it a lot? Two years ago, I believe it was, and they were coming. They were playing in Brampton on a Saturday and a Sunday. So they were playing Friday night, I believe, in Kalamazoo. Then they were playing... Saturday night in Brampton and Sunday afternoon in Brampton. Well, Rochester called up three forwards and a defenseman. So they had to play with five defensemen and only seven forwards Friday night. And then the, the, those four guys met the team in Brampton. And then they ended up winning both of those games uh, with those guys. But it, without those guys, I mean, you play three games in, in two and a half days with seven forwards and five defensemen. I mean, that's just, that's, that's asking a lot of those guys to go out and do that. But that, you know, that's the way it is. One time we were, we, we had a sleeper bus and, and we had the really nice buses. I think um, uh, Vivi or, and, and Rick had kind of 
set it up. I, I do know that, that we've had this bus out of Alabama, rock star bus, all our bunks. So what we do lots of times is we'd leave, we'd leave and sleep on the bus and um, arrive in our city the next morning. And then we'd jump on the ice, pregame skate, go to the hotel, take our nap, get ready for the, get ready for the game. So guys would get a little rest on the, on the bus and, and do it that way. Well, we pulled, we pulled in uh, one night early in the morning to go unload our bags and we get off on the, on the, underneath the rink and everyone starts unloading and, and we're looking at this. Isn't this, isn't this Hampton Roads? We're in Hampton, we're in Hampton Roads in North. And uh, it goes, I thought we were, someone goes, I thought we were playing Richmond, Virginia. And all of a sudden we kind of look over and I, I can't remember if it was, it was uh, Rick Aduno coaching and, and, and he turns around, he goes, we're supposed to be in Richmond. We all load back up on the bus. We're in the wrong city. Went to the, our bus driver went to the wrong city. So we have to jump back on the bus, haul ass another couple hours before we got to the right city for our game. Well, speaking of the cities, I'd leave this one with you here, uh, Jared, is uh, the bubble. Uh, you know, again, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you the bubble experience, but uh, what did you guys as an organization take away from that experience as a team? And what can we look forward to the avalanche in this up and coming season? You know, I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. The NHL did a great job. We were in Edmonton, obviously. Um, the, we were in the round robin. So playing for having some days off and then playing four games over the first two weeks was really slow. Um, that just seemed like it was amplified. So if you had a day off, it felt like it was three or four days. Um, so that part was slow. And then we got into the, the, the actual playoffs and things started to move along. And it was a great experience. It was, you know, they made us as comfortable as we could possibly be as players and coaches and um, did a nice job of putting the event on. And I'm glad we, we got to do it. Uh, our, our guys were really focused. We felt like we had an opportunity or a team that could possibly win if we played the right way and, and got a little bit of luck. And um, we came out of it, you know, came up short. But it, our guys were focused. They didn't have a lot of issues with it. We, we were really happy with the way it went and, and, and our focus of our group. Um, I think this year that's, you know, we feel like it was a missed opportunity. And some of that was luck and injuries, and um, you know, I didn't. There, we we didn't play quite as well as what what we could have, and, and some of it like losing some personnel hurt us. But going through that and talking with their players, it's it's you you learn every year that the opportunities to win they they just don't come every day, you know, and you, and you can't pass them up. So. Uh, you know, last year I thought we were one thing we wanted to address was our consistency, um, which probably was part of our urgency that we played with and competitiveness that we needed to play with. I felt like we did a much better job this year, and, and our record was better, and um, we were wanted home ice, and we we were fighting for that. And um, this year, I think it's just going to be. Um, you know, again, the message is, is probably going to be somewhere along the lines of, you know, some of the things that hurt us in playoffs and um, the, the, habit, the habitual things that you're not building habits throughout the course of the year and, and the importance of every play is uh, something that we're going to try and stress in, in the detail of our game. So we're doing it right uh, 
longer and harder than other teams and which eventually will lead to success if, if, if we're able to play at our best. And simple message, but um, we, we did a lot of things right last year and we just got to, we got to keep finding ways to get it incrementally better. Ricky, final comment. Well, I, uh, all I want to say is uh, it was wonderful to have you on, Betsy, and uh, uh, you've done a, a great job uh, since you've gone there. You obviously, you did a great job in Charleston after, well after I had left, but uh, um, good luck this year. You have a hell of a team and uh, you've done a great job and, and hopefully uh, you have some success and get your ultimate goal. It's something that we all want. I mean, everybody wants to win a Stanley Cup, and I, and I hope you get to do that one day. And uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, I still i am in contact with a lot of the guys in Charleston, and it, it was a wonderful place. And uh, hopefully maybe we can get together maybe uh, sometime next summer when all of this uh, pandemic and everything disappears because I'd love to get down there and play some golf with you guys again. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk some hockey here. It's been a while. Hey, great. Yeah. Great having you on, Jared. All and right. uh, best of luck to you and do well. Well, Ricky, another good boy. I, we just keep petting them out of the park here. I feel like uh, George Bell or, uh, you know, Jose Bautista. We just keep petting them out of the park with the guests we're getting on here. They just make it so much easier for you and I. Boy, what a guy. He's uh, certainly focused. You can see why. You can see why he's a National Hockey League coach. He just doesn't get deterred or distrait or distracted or sways off. Like he's got a set focus, you can see, but he's a guy with a very open mind. And that's a very difficult thing to do as a National Hockey League coach. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's at, at any level, it, it's very difficult to be like yeah. that. But, uh, Good point. but Jared was always, even as a player, he was always pretty level-headed and, 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 you know, didn't lose his cool that often. And, uh, you know, you, I wasn't surprised when he took over as a coach here and had success and then, you know, eventually made it to the National Hockey League. That didn't surprise me because that's the type of person he is. Also, he's a person that cares about other people. He was a great leader in our, our dressing room and, and made everybody feel comfortable and uh, welcome and everything else. So, um, his success doesn't surprise me at all because that's the type of person he is. You know, good for you. you can see it. And, uh, you know, we like to see guys like that do well because and you can see the players would play for him. You, he's just got that personality and that he just, he, he gets it. And yeah. um, it just comes through loud and clear. And uh, so we want to thank him for joining us. Uh, you know, it's another good uh, little talk with talking some hockey with uh, the Colorado Avalanche coach. Guys, you can pick us up here on Squid in the uh, ULF on uh, Twitter, go to our uh, YouTube page. You can find us there. We're on all the podcast networks now on Spotify and iTunes. Look for us. Uh, look up Rick under Rick Vive, me under uh, the Ultimate Least Fan. Send your questions in. We're getting a lot of questions coming out. We'll try and get to yours and we'll get you on your and give you a shout out. Uh, we'll come up with our guests right in the next couple of days. But uh, listen, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll talk to you next week.